true to his word, Vercingetorix has united all of Gaul against the Romans. Or at least, pretty near to it. Gaul has been united by the epic struggle at Elysia. Word has spread quickly of Vercingetorix and his brave warriors being trapped at Elysia by a massive ring of Roman fortifications. This brave stand and the desire to save these men has brought the fractious Gauls together. According to Caesar, at least 44 tribes have joined together in a massive army and marched to the rescue of Vercingetorix. And if Caesar's numbers are to be believed, 240,000 Gallic infantry, 8,000 Gallic cavalry, marched together to the relief of Vercingetorix's 80,000 men against Caesar's mere 35 to 40, maybe 45,000 men. If Caesar's numbers are to be believed, as we've already discussed. When this Gallic relief army finally arrives at Elysia, it occupies a hill a mile from the Roman fortifications around Elysia, and there stops to rest and plan. The next day, the Gauls deploy their impressive army for battle. The cavalry deploy on the plain to the west of Elysia. The infantry line up on the slope of a hill behind the cavalry. When Vercingetorix and his fellow warriors see the relief army, they go wild with rejoicing. Their salvation is at hand. By this time, Vercingetorix and his 80,000 men have moved into Elysia itself. And upon seeing the relief army, they rush out of Elysia and head down to the first ditch the Romans had dug across the plain. This ditch is quite a distance in front of the rest of the Roman fortifications. So the Gauls start filling the ditch in and putting bundles of sticks over it in preparation of joining in the attack if the relief army decides on an assault. In response, Caesar deploys his men along both sets of walls in preparation for a Gallic assault from both directions. He then sends his own cavalry out to meet the Gallic cavalry on the plain. The two cavalry forces engage as all the men in the Roman army, the Gallic relief force, and the defenders of Elysia watch. It's a little like a modern sporting event, except the players are killing each other. Caesar says on this in the commentaries, quote, The action took place in full view of all, and it was impossible for any deed, be it courageous or cowardly, to be concealed. Thus the desire for praise and the fear of failure roused both sides to acts of bravery. End quote. With this audience watching, the Gallic cavalry soon get the better of Caesar's cavalry. For one, they outnumber the Roman cavalry. Two, the Gauls interspersed archers and light infantry among their cavalry to support them when they get into trouble. These archers and light infantry make a big difference in this engagement. They surprise the Roman cavalry and wound a number of them. These wounded Roman cavalrymen then start retreating to their side from the fighting. This retreat convinces the Gauls that they are indeed the superior warriors, and they grow in confidence and begin to use their superior numbers to press the Roman cavalry. When this happens, both the watching Gallic relief army and the Gauls in Elysia begin cheering loudly. Caesar calls it howling. This, of course, only bolsters the Gallic cavalry spirits even further. Now, despite this poor start, the Roman cavalry seems to have recovered somewhat after this, and the fighting rages from midday until sunset without any clear winner. But just then, 
Caesar's ferocious German cavalry form up into a mass and charge the Gallic cavalry, routing them. Caesar has to be thanking his lucky stars that he even recruited these Germans. With the Gallic cavalry now fleeing, the Roman cavalry is easily able to surround and kill all of the archers. They then pursue the fleeing Gauls right up to their camp. The Gallic defenders of Elysia then turn back to re-enter Elysia, painfully hungry and thoroughly dejected. The next day, the Gallic relief force spends the day making large numbers of ladders, bundles of sticks, ropes, grappling hooks. These are all tools to be used in attacking the Roman fortifications around Elysia. And the grappling hooks are actually hooks attached to large poles used to tear down walls and ramparts. And once the sun goes down, the relief army waits until midnight, and then quietly approaches the Roman fortifications on the plain below Elysia. All at once, the Gallic relief army lets out a mighty roar. They immediately start laying down their wicker hurdles to bridge the Roman ditches. At the same time, other Gauls throw rocks with slings or shoot arrows at the Roman defenses in an attempt to drive the Romans from the ramparts. This must have been like the alarm clock from hell for the Romans. The second Vercingetorix hears this cry go up from the Gallic relief army. He orders trumpets to sound and leads his men out of Elysia. This was the whole reason for the relief force yelling out like that before their attack. The goal is to have both Gallic armies attack the Roman forces at the same time in the same location. This will allow them to pin the Romans between the two Gallic armies as if between a hammer and an anvil. The issue, of course, is that the two Gallic armies can't easily communicate with each other to coordinate an attack, especially not at night. So the relief force's solution is to let out a group battle cry before attacking to alert Vercingetorix. Down at the Roman fortifications, more and more Romans are lining the ramparts. Caesar says they all had designated locations, and it would seem they could easily find these locations even at night. The Roman soldiers start firing back at the Gauls with everything they have. They're using slings to throw large stones. They're throwing pikes from the Roman towers, shooting or throwing other missiles at the attacking Gauls from the ramparts. All the while, they're keeping up a continual barrage of missiles from their artillery machines. Caesar says the darkness, and therefore decreased visibility, led to high casualties on both sides. It also aided in the effectiveness of the Roman traps so lovingly named by Caesar's men. The Gauls aren't able to see these traps, and so are falling into them and getting impaled. The sector of the Roman fortifications under attack are under the command of two of Caesar's legates, Gaius Trebonius, one of Caesar's future assassins, and Caesar's new quaestor, Marcus Antonius, better known to us as Mark Antony. And yes, that is the famous Mark Antony, he of Shakespeare. Often seen as Julius Caesar's right-hand man, he isn't there yet. Antony's missed the majority of the Gallic War because he only recently became one of Caesar's legates, and this is his first mention in the commentaries. But despite missing most of the Gallic War, Antony has made sure to arrive just in time for the climactic battle of Elysia. And we'll talk more about Antony later. For now, back to the Battle of Elysia. 
Trebonius and Mark Antony start pulling soldiers from towers further along the fortifications that are under attack to man the parts that are being threatened the most. The battle rages until sunrise. And as the sun rises, the Gallic Relief Army retreats for fear of being outflanked on their exposed side by men of one of the Roman camps. Now, the wild thing in all of this is that Vercingetorix's men never made it to the battle. They took so long organizing themselves and gathering materials to bridge the Roman ditches that by the time they made it over the first Roman ditch, the sun is rising and the relief army is retreating. And remember, this first Roman ditch on this side of the walls is a good ways from the actual Roman fortifications. So Vercingetorix and his men never even attacked the inside ramparts. What a lost opportunity. You would think that they would have had all of this stuff ready for the assault that they have been praying to come, right? They've been praying for this relief army to come and save them, and it's here now, and they don't seem to have had their act together. Though maybe we should cut them some slack, since they are starving, and I can imagine their critical thinking is functioning at a much lower level than is usual, never mind their physical energy to actually get the work done. Back at the Gallic relief camp, they start brainstorming. Clearly their plan of coming in hot and crushing the Romans by sheer numbers hasn't worked. So it's time to take a step back and create a more well-thought-out, tactical plan. So they summon some men who know the local area and start picking their brains. Now this is something that they should have done before they even arrived at Elysia. But here we are, better late than never. Essentially, these local experts tell the Gallic leaders that there is a weak point in Caesar's lines of fortification. This weak point is in the northwestern part of the outer Roman fortifications. Here, there is a Roman camp with two legions on the gradual slope of a large hill. Now, ideally, Caesar would have incorporated this hill into his fortifications. But the hill is so large that it would have made his fortifications too spread out for his soldiers to adequately man and defend them. What this means is that if the Gauls attack from this hill against the Roman camp, they will have the advantage of having the high ground in the fight. And in my explorations of the battlefield of Elysia, the site I wanted to find the most was this weak point in Caesar's lines. This is where the climax of the entire battle of Elysia will unfold. This is where the fate of free Gaul will be decided. And while it's difficult to be 100% sure, and I'm no archaeologist, to the best of my knowledge, I found this site when I visited Elysia. It took some searching of the countryside as I compared the local landscape to Caesar's descriptions in the commentaries and more modern maps of the battle, but eventually, I found it. And I filmed all of this for you guys and put it on YouTube. I even explained how I identified and found this location. So if you want to really see what this pivotal site in the Battle of Elysia looked like, check out my YouTube video. The link is in the show notes. The four leaders of the Gallic Relief Army review all of this. And after sending some scouts to check out the area, decide it's the perfect site to launch an attack on. And by the way, at least three out of the four leaders of the Gallic Relief Army have worked closely with Caesar in the past. One of them is Comius, the man Caesar had sent ahead of his army to Britain. Caesar had even made Comius king of his tribe. Two others are the two Idoean men who used to command Caesar's Idoean cavalry. You may remember their names are Viri Domaris and Eperodorix. 
And yes, these are the two men that had stolen Caesar's baggage train once they had defected. The fourth leader is for Cassivellaunus, who is Vercingetorix's cousin. And it's for Cassivellaunus that is chosen to lead this attack. According to Caesar, Vercassivellanus takes 60,000 picked men at night and secretly marches them to the reverse side of the hill that the Roman camp is on. This is the Roman camp at the weak point in Caesar's lines. Vercassivellanus lets his men rest there until noon, at which time he and his army of 60,000, all the caveats about Caesar's numbers, but he and his army of 60,000 march up the hill and suddenly appear before the Romans. The Gauls stream down the hill and attack Caesar's fortifications at their weakest point from the high ground. At the same time, the rest of the Gallic Relief Army launches diversionary attacks on other parts of the Roman fortifications. Vercingetorix sees all of this from the citadel of Elysia, and this time he's ready. He and his men rush down from Elysia carrying all the equipment that they had made to attack Caesar's inner lines. This is when the Battle of Elysia is at its fiercest. Caesar says there was fighting on every side as the Gauls attacked both the outside lines and the inside lines simultaneously. Wherever the Gauls spot a hint of weakness in the lines, there they concentrate their attacks. With the Gauls attacking over such a broad area, the Roman defenders are spread thin and are being pushed to their breaking point. Traps, ditches, ramparts, parapets, towers, siege engines, all of these defenses are being put to the test. Since the Gauls are attacking the inside and outside lines simultaneously, the Roman soldiers manning both walls can hear shouting and fighting coming from the walls behind them, even as they face Gallic warriors in front of them. This causes them a lot of fear as they realize that their safety depends not just on their own bravery and intelligence and, and skill in battle, but it depends heavily on the courage and ability of the men behind them, manning the walls behind them. Caesar, in one of his great quotes for the ages, writes on this in the Gallic commentaries, quote, After all, it is usually the case that what is unseen is more effective in disturbing men's minds. End quote. Sometimes you'll see this reformatted or translated differently, maybe to sound better in English, as, quote, As a rule, what is out of sight disturbs men's minds more seriously than what they see. End quote. Soon, Caesar takes up a position where he can see everything happening. From here, he orders reinforcements to any section of the defenses in danger of being overrun. Both sides know they are fighting for their very existence. Caesar writes in the commentaries, quote, Both sides realize that this was the very moment for putting their utmost effort into the fight. The Gauls must despair of saving themselves unless they broke through the Roman defenses. And the Romans, if they held firm... We're looking forward to the end of all their labors. End quote. The battle rages at its fiercest at the weak point in the Roman lines where Cassivellaunus and his 60,000 picked men are attacking. The Gauls have the advantage of a downward sloping hill here, and some of these Gauls throw missiles at the Roman defenders from the high ground. Others form a tortoise or shield wall and march towards the Roman defenses. They fill in the Roman traps with dirt and pile up more dirt to help them ascend the Roman ramparts easier. Exhausted Gauls are continually replaced by fresh men. The Roman defenders of this camp are quickly becoming exhausted and are running out of weapons. Seeing this, 
Caesar sends his right-hand man and ablest legate Labienus with six cohorts to reinforce his position. Caesar then decides that his men need their general in person. He goes to his men and encourages them as they fight. He urges them not to give up the struggle. He tells them that the fruits of all their previous battles depend on this day, this hour. Suetonius tells us that Caesar would often rally his men single-handedly if they retreated, even grabbing retreating men by the throat and forcing them to turn around and face the enemy. As all of this is happening, Vercingetorix and his men have been struggling unsuccessfully to storm the inner fortifications. So far, they've been concentrating their attacks on the spots where the ground is level in the plain. And though the ground on these sites was favorable, this section of the ramparts was too well defended. Now Vercingetorix switches tactics. He and his men attack a part of the inner fortifications that have steeper slopes, but have less defenders. And though there are less of them on this part of the fortifications, the Roman defenders are ready for the Gauls. They hit the Gauls with a hail of missiles which scatters them, but soon Vercingetorix and his Gauls regroup. The Gauls then fill in the ditches with dirt and hurdles. They start tearing down the Roman rampart and parapet with grappling hooks. And upon seeing this, Caesar sends Decimus Brutus, another one of his assassins, with a number of cohorts to reinforce that part of the line. And when these reinforcements aren't enough, Caesar sends Fabius with more cohorts. Still, the Gauls keep pressing, and finally, Caesar leads fresh reinforcements in person. With Caesar now there in person, and with the help of these new reinforcements, finally, Vercingetorix and his Gauls are repulsed. Napoleon Bonaparte, the man Clausewitz referred to as the God of War, once wrote, quote, There is a moment in combat when the slightest maneuver is decisive and gives superiority. It is the drop of water that starts the overflow. End quote. In writing this, Napoleon was referring to Caesar at the later Battle of Munda in Spain. It applies just as well to Elysia, though. Right here in the Battle of Elysia is that moment Napoleon was referring to, and Caesar knows it. The next few moves Caesar makes are pivotal. After repulsing Vercingetorix and his men, Caesar wastes no time. He rides to the weak point in his outer lines, the same spot where the battle began and where Caesar had sent Labienus with reinforcements. Along the way, he gathers four cohorts from a fort. Caesar also finds the Roman cavalry who haven't been deployed into the battle yet. He splits his cavalry force into two. One part he orders to follow him. The other part he orders to exit the Roman fortifications and ride around behind the force of Gauls attacking the weak point. Meanwhile, Labienus and his men have lost control of the Roman rampart and are pushed back into the camp despite all the defensive fortifications they had built. Labienus then manages to find 14 cohorts and adds these to six cohorts he had come with and the two legions stationed in the camp. Labienus manages to form a line with these men to hold back the attacking Gauls. He then sends word to Caesar telling him what's happening, that he's been pushed back beyond the outer defenses. Caesar says he hurried to join the fighting. When he arrives on the scene, everyone notices because of his conspicuous scarlet cape. The attacking Gauls can see the new cohorts and cavalry Caesar's brought as reinforcements. Both sides raise a mighty shout. The Gauls in defiance of Caesar and his reinforcements. The Romans cheering their arrival, their morale bolstered. This shout is answered from the rampart and defense works. 
The Romans throw their javelins at the Gauls and draw their swords. Both sides join battle and the fighting rages. This is the pivotal point in the pivotal battle of the entire war, that point in which Napoleon said a drop of water can start the overflow. And as the fate of Gaul hangs in the balance, suddenly, cavalry is glimpsed on the hill behind the Gauls. More cohorts of infantry are advancing. The Gauls have been outflanked by the force Caesar has sent outside the fortifications. In fear, they begin to flee. The Roman cavalry charges them, and as Caesar says, mass slaughter followed. Caesar claims only a few of this massive Gallic army made it back to their camp alive. 74 Gallic standards are captured in the ensuing rout. Vercingetorix and his men, seeing the relief force retreating in disarray, give up hope and retreat back into Elysia. Caesar tells us that as soon as news of the defeat arrived back at the camp, the Gauls there immediately began to flee. And had the Roman army not been so thoroughly exhausted, he tells us, they would have pursued them and wiped out the entire Gallic army. As it was, Caesar sends out his cavalry around midnight, and this force catches up to the Gallic rearguard, captures and kills many of the Gauls. The rest of the Gauls flee back to their homelands. And referring to the flight of the Gallic relief force, ancient biographer Plutarch writes, quote, So soon did so vast an army dissolve and vanish like a ghost or a dream, the greatest part of them being killed upon the spot. End quote. Back in Elysia, the defeated Vercingetorix calls a council of war. He tells his followers that he will put himself in their hands. If they want to get in the Roman good graces by executing him, they can do that. If they want to hand him over alive to the Romans, he would abide by that decision as well. The Gauls in Elysia then send envoys to Caesar, asking how they should proceed given these options. Caesar tells them to hand over all of their weapons and bring down the ringleaders alive. In the commentaries, Caesar keeps the description of what happens next very simple. He says he took a seat within the Roman fortifications. There, the ringleaders were brought before him. Vercingetorix was handed over, and the Gallic weapons thrown down. Caesar then separates the Aedui and the Averni tribesmen from the rest of the Gauls, the men of these powerful tribes he keeps safe to be used in, in winning the later peace. The rest of the Gauls he gives out as slaves to his men, every soldier receiving one slave. This is a relatively simple end to a grand struggle. Some of the other ancient authors, writing 150 or even 250 years later or more, tell us a much more dramatic account. And many times I am hesitant to believe these sources over eyewitnesses like Caesar, even given Caesar's obvious interest in portraying himself in the best light possible. But in this case, I'm not so sure. Plutarch and Dio tell two different dramatic tales, but both have Vercingetorix as the star of the show in the end. And it's easy to imagine a big ego like Julius Caesar not wanting to be upstaged by his rival in his greatest moment of triumph in his own commentaries. Dio has Vercingetorix surrendering in the hope that Caesar would show him mercy in light of their past friendship. In this version of the story, Vercingetorix unexpectedly appears before the Roman lines in all his armor. Vercingetorix is a large, extremely imposing and intimidating Gaul, 
So this sudden appearance throws the Romans into alarm. And once the Romans realize who he is and quiet down, Vercingetorix, saying not a word, goes before Caesar who is sitting on his magistrate's or curule chair on a raised tribunal, and there falls to his knees and holds his hands clasped in an act of supplication. Plutarch tells perhaps the most dramatic version. In this telling, Vercingetorix puts on his finest armor and mounts his best war horse. He then rides out of Elysia and rides to where Caesar is sitting on his curule chair. Vercingetorix rides once around Caesar in a circle before dismounting his horse, throwing off his fine armor and sitting quietly at the feet of Julius Caesar. However it happened, we know Vercingetorix surrendered to Caesar. All three versions tell us this. And as the victorious Julius Caesar looked down triumphantly at the defeated and broken Vercingetorix, I imagine Caesar thinking to himself, Woe to the vanquished.